Welcome to the EIF Talks. Uh, my name is Sven. I am one of the co-facilitators for the seminar that we are currently having here in Gummersbach. The topic of the seminar is liberalism versus populism, recreating the story of freedom. And my co-facilitator here uh, this week is Radu. Radu, you might want to introduce yourself as well. Hi, I'm Radu. I'm Romanian. I'm passionate about communications and I am honored to co-facilitate this almost two weeks with a very interesting global group. Perfect. So I, I just want to say a couple of things about my background and then maybe Radu also wants to jump in to say a couple of things about himself. So you just all get the background on how we approach the topic of uh, populism and liberalism. Um, my name is Sven, as I said before. I'm originally from Germany, but I live in London for a couple of years now. I do a PhD in political philosophy at King's College London. And I'm still the Secretary General of the International Federation of Liberal Youth, IFLORI. So that's kind of my background in philosophy and politics, uh, but also civil society. So I know the phenomenon from quite various aspects. And that's also something that uh, we have in common with our participants who also come from various walks of life. Maybe, Radu, uh, you want to quickly give an overview of your uh, professional credentials before we dive in? Mm -hmm. I work with two prime ministers in uh, Romania and then Moldova. I've worked in Brussels for several years, out of which three were in the European Parliament. So I had the taste of both national and multinational politics. And in the past few years, uh, I've been very excited to be among the trainers and facilitators for a variety of uh, events with the Naumann Stiftung around Europe. It's more than 10 states now. Perfect. So we have that out of the way. We can dive right into the topic of uh, liberalism versus populism. The way we structured our seminar is also the way we structure this podcast. Um, we will focus on a deconstruction method based on a couple of pillars. And the pillars that we chose for this conversation is we talk about the values and the value differences between the ideologies. That's already some sort of uh, disclaimer because we think that populism is not only about rhetorics and communication. It's a, an ideological threat. Um, opponent to liberalism. So we focus on the values. Then afterwards on the politics, populists do politics in a very specific way. So do liberals. And we portrayed and contrasted them in our seminar. Then we move to the different visions that both ideologies have about society. And lastly, we talk a little bit about the communication aspect. This is usually covered most of the time in popular culture, like in journalism. They uh, portray populists as very popular communicators. But we fleshed out that there is more to the phenomenon. So let's start with values. The populist values is very hard to summarize because it's not an ideology like conservatism or socialism or liberalism for that sake, where you have a lot of intellectual material with which you can work, but rather something that we observe from everyday experience. And that makes populist so interesting because it's a phenomenon that we can actively map with our participants. So Radu, maybe you can have some insights. What did the participants bring up when they reflected on the experiences that they had with populism in their respective countries? And just as a side note, participants come here from all uh, walks of life and also from very different political um, scenarios. So they have uh, Eastern European populism. We have the classical Latin American populism, authoritarianism. Then we have, of course, new arising phenomenons like uh, Erdogan in Turkey or Duterte in the Philippines. So people have very different uh, touch points or touching points with uh, populism. What was your impression? What was kind of the first intuition that people had about populist values? I would say a word, pluralism. 
Uh, we then uh, went further, um, as you remembered, on the exact significance, the nuances, how you can apply this in a society. But if I were to point out to a common denominator, I would say this is the word. Uh, whenever we're doing um, other classes or facilitations moments with the uh, multinational groups, um, each one of us before that believes that our country or our landscape is so exceptional. But in terms of values and in terms of, let's say, um, both opportunities and dangers to democracy, the truth is, while there are local specificities, there are a lot of things that we have in common. And uh, it's not by chance that I started with this uh, word, pluralism, because, of course, separate from that, uh, they indicated rule of law, they indicated, you know, freedom or slash liberty. You know? they, uh, we went quite a lot into, um, I would say, um, trying to see how exactly these values are also then expressed into politics, policies, and communications. But I would stress again, it's about diversity. And one of the soundbites that I love from one of the participants, he came from, a, from an ASEAN country, he said that we're here to celebrate diversity. Yes. So that's kind of the, the touching point. So they see uh, the liberal message as something that is obsessed with uh, with diversity, acceptance, tolerance, toleration, however one however wants to name this. Um, and the populists attack this, let's say, liberal um, obsession with diversity, with pluralism, and basically want to attack this pillar very fundamentally. Um, liberals have not only celebrated diversity, they also set in place the institutions that help us to appreciate um, diversity. So liberals have always been in favor of minority rights. They have always protected the individual and allowed the individual to shape their own identity. And now we see a new player with the populists coming in place that fundamentally changes this shift. So we have thought as, as liberals that we will progress towards a society where everybody can really develop their own identity. And now the populists are saying, oh, maybe we have a coherent identity, an overarching identity, and we should all certainly adhere to that. Um, do you have an example in mind that was mentioned in, in the seminar, uh, how pluralism was undermined by the populists? Well, I think it's um, the essence of any such demonization operation to uh, play on the prejudice. We started from the with clear examples from uh, uh, from different societies on prejudice, and then uh, different kind of examples of stigmatization based on prejudice, and then basically this is we we all came to the conclusion that this is a process based on which identity politics tries to destroy this pluralist pillar by essentially playing on the divisive lines and playing out on the facts which singled out minorities in different different kind of minorities, whether we're talking about racial minorities, we're talking about sexual minorities, uh, or uh, um, other kind of uh, kind of minorities. Um, I agree quite a lot with one of the things uh, you said, uh, not only at this seminar, but also when I had the opportunity to meet in other times. And I think it would be really useful for people who are listening to us, if you could further elaborate on this, the idea that the new dividing line in politics is no longer about, let's say, liberalism versus socialism or liberalism versus conservatives, but about liberals and politics. Yeah, I think that's basically following naturally from what we are discussing already about pluralism, um, I think the big realignment in politics nowadays is not about left versus right, where it was about economic inequality and economic policies mainly, where the liberals were kind of caught in the middle and had to form alliances with either uh, the left, 
when it comes to civil liberties or when it comes to the right, when it comes to uh, minimal state and to economic redistribution, which some some liberals, if not all, are rather skeptical about whether the, the state is the right tool to achieve such things. Uh, and nowadays, I don't think that these dividing lines hold up. The big... Um, Debates are happening around the topic of pluralism, as you have indicated, and that shifted certainly the focus. The focus is maybe less on economic issues and more on cultural issues, and therefore we see this great realignment towards the people or the, the political lines in favor of an open society, where I would count the liberals as the forerunners, and then you have proponents of the closed society. And that's where the, the dividing line comes in very clearly, because they are the forerunners, are the populists. They are developing this vision of the closed society, this anti-pluralistic vision, as Jan-Werner Müller calls it. Um, so it's kind of a metaphysical anti-pluralism, denying that there is diversity in society, denying there is heterogeneity in society, but rather trying to homogenize society and homogenize culture. That's a very interesting move, because in the past we believed that what Bill Clinton says is basically right, uh, it's the economy, baby, who determines election results. Liberals were somehow caught up in between the different camps. But now we seem to be at the forefront. We seem to be at the battleground of modern politics when it comes to, I wouldn't say the culture wars, but where culture and identity is one of the key pillars of the political debate. And we see this playing out more and more uh, in terms of, especially I would say, Western progressive um, democracies where it's basically a battle of liberals versus populists and not the the social democrats or the working class versus uh, the conservative or christian democrats in this country so it's a very interesting uh, new political setup i think quite tellingly uh, francis fukuyama released a book last year on identity uh, where he basically argues very similarly that identity plays an overarching role in terms of the political landscape this is i think the fundamental point to understand why we set up this seminar with the participants where it's liberalism versus populism we don't want to make liberalism artificially big but it is the out there the core player the core paradigm versus the populist paradigm and that's i think the fundamental insight to understand this new alignment in politics so once we have now fleshed out the pluralist dimension and the realignment in politics What other features do you remember people brought up when it comes to populism, to map populism in terms of its values? What other things did participants bring in? I think one of the most important issues that participants realized was how pragmatic, in fact, populist politics is. Because it's so hard to identify values. It's more about attacking the, so the establishment of the values. And whether we like it or not as liberals, I think that one of the fundamental challenges that we're faced with right now is that Liberals always stood up for progress. But what happens when you win a series of cultural, societal, political and economical battles? And as a winner, you become, whether you like it or not, the status quo. The liberals right now, globally, because of the advent of liberal democracy, you know, with capitalist values, with liberal values in terms of uh, society and so on, are, whether they like it or not, also part of the establishment. This is one of the reasons why it's so easy, and participants realize this, to for populist players to simply come and say, I don't like this. Their values are a denial of our values. Their denial more it's it's less about saying like I'm I'm me I'm I'm George I'm a populist and I stand up for this this and this 
It's very hard to see in populist language somebody who is values-based. What's interesting is more how they create, by simplicity, what we call in political communications moral high ground. And how do they justify, you know, uh, how first of all, how they're pretentious about this so-called moral supremacy, you know, and um, on how little shallow argument it actually stays. It's, it's like... Uh, we're sitting here at the table and suddenly may I say, rado good. Does it mean, does it automatically make me good? No, that should be based on values, that should be based on action. But the trick with the populist is they hijack specific words and by repetition, we're supposed to believe them by their own world. Of course, as we see right now in, uh, in European but also global politics, Okay, in some cases, populist or versions, including uh, populist language, come to power. But the truth is, we're not yet dominated. Mainstream parties still hold the flank. Uh, there was a book a few years ago um, uh, in Obama times about the mainstream who still resists. You know, So I would say, yes, the mainstream still resists. The liberals are still there. But the, ch- the thing is, we should be able, I think this is one of the reasons why we're doing uh, these seminars already, the, the, the second time we're, we're doing this together, is to provide a roadmap to the future, to brainstorm and not simply just wait like a citadel under siege for the others to finally take it. Oh, so much to contextualize. Uh, uh, where to start? I, I think the, the, the first part is, of course, we liberals have to realize that our paradigm, maybe not a liberal parties, because in many countries they are still rather small, but a liberal paradigm of liberal democracy has become the mainstream, has become the establishment. And so I always like the phrase of the, the populist backlash, because the populist backlash is a reaction to liberalism. Liberalism shifting into the center of what is commonly agreed upon a decent political system. And its values have become very widespread and sometimes even unchallenged. And what happens if you are not challenging certain beliefs, we find it already in John Stuart Mill, they will become dead dogmas. That's how Mill calls it. And once something becomes a dead dogma, we are having a hard time to defend it. And the populists understood that very well because they're now attacking these dead dogmas. Oh, why are we in favor of democracy? What do we mean by democracy? I think a common thing that we will talk about in the later segment is liberals have a very hard time articulating their vision for liberal democracy because it became like a dead dogma for them that they did not really explore and flesh out in greater detail. And now the populists hijack this dogma. So I really like the overall approach that the populists are the backlash to the liberals, which basically ties into this narrative of um, the great realignment. But let me flesh out a couple of other things that you have also said, what we brought from the seminar as insights. So, of course, populists are anti-establishment. That means not only anti-establishment against the liberal paradigm, but also against certain elites, the formation of a bureaucracy, the formation of independent institutions that, frankly speaking, have to take some time. Because if you have a procedural account of politics, there are many procedures that you have to respect, and therefore the political process necessarily is slowed down, which liberals don't per se condemn. But... The, lib- the populists flesh that out and make it an, an anti-system, anti-establishment claim. And I think that's very interesting. That's something that we don't only find in like Trump, who's very famous for coining tr- drain the swamp, but we find it in all other, politi- in all other um, political populist movements. The next one is the simple solutions, offering simple solutions that kind of circumvent these institutional solutions. 
And I think here's a, a big danger, or I would say liberals don't fully acknowledge yet the potential of this argument in the public sphere because it is very appealing to the voter. And a liberal doesn't per se have a good answer. We believe in spontaneous order. We know the complexity of social systems. Adam Smith famously talked about a man of systems that you cannot just move around. People have will on their own. So you cannot just implement top-down solutions that will work. It's just too, too complex. And this liberal, I would like to say modesty, but that's of course because I'm biased. This liberal modesty has, has led to the fact that we, don't, we can't offer simple solutions because in complex worlds there are no simple solutions. And we have to be better at articulating what the solutions really are and what is on the table. And the populists have that advantage that they can offer very simple solutions to these problems that don't rely on spontaneous order or bottom-up approaches, but are usually top-down, easy-to-comprehend mechanisms. So this is uh, another interesting aspect that you threw in. The last one that I want to use is what, what you called uh, moralizing. The moralizing effect of populism is also something very interesting for liberals because it goes against its fundamental core pillars. So John Rawls put out a vision of political liberalism where all that is existential, the spiritual, the conception of the good, so what does it mean to live a good life? Should we believe in a god or not? Should we value certain aesthetics over others? This should not enter the political, the political arena. This should stay private. And the populists make the exact opposite move. They take these moralizing aspects of life they take the spiritual, they take the aesthetics, they take um, the conception of what it means to live a good life and try to put it deliberately into the political debate again. And this is an old idea. It's not new and I think most powerfully articulated by Carl Schmitt, who says that politics is the existential, and I stress here, existential battle of uh, friend versus enemy. So you don't only divide, like anti-pluralists, we discussed that, that divide and conquer, but it's an existential battle. Politics gives you meaning in life. And the liberals basically say, pursue meaning somewhere else in life, but not in the political. In the political, we have to look for joint cooperation that makes us all prosper. There's a hard contrast. No other ideological cl clash has this contrast. And I think that's very crucial to understand what uh, the populist ide ideology is after. And that's why I think we have to label it as an ideology. So let me quickly wrap up for the, for the listeners this first segment. So what we discussed is populism is fundamentally anti-pluralist, while liberals are advocates for pluralism and diversity. We have said that the, the populists are in favor of simple solutions, while the liberals know the complexity of real life and believe more in spontaneous order than some top-down regulation. The populists have a moralizing conception of what politics means. They want to unload the political with values, with uh, the moral high ground, while liberals say, well, everybody pursues their own conception of the good. And in politics, it's more about, I, I wouldn't say pragmatism, but it's coming to live together besides disagreement that you have. Um, and then lastly, the populists are fundamentally anti-establishment. They are anti-institutions. And the liberals are very much in favor of institutions. Because institutions protect us from the abuse of power of the one who is currently governing. Even if a liberal is governing, I want the right institutions in place to prevent the abuse of power. And I think this gives our listeners already a couple of insights about the structure and the big clash of values that we have. But I will use this last point as a segue, the one about institutions, as a segue into the next segment about politics. 
because the politics of populists are very interesting. They attack liberal democracy very deliberately. Do you have some anecdotes in mind from the seminar how some populist group tried to dismantle liberal democratic institutions? Um, I think it's so interesting when you have a global uh, a global group that um, whenever um, we hear specific examples, you know, of particularly since populism is on the rise globally, you know, uh, you realize um, that of, okay, there is a local specificity, but there is also a global flavor. I would say that uh, particularly for. Um, Interesting cases are the Latin American ones because, um, in a way, whenever we are looking at the trends right now in Europe, we're mostly talking about uh, right-wing populism or uh, um, um, something leading towards uh, nationalism uh, combined with conservatism, whereas Latin America has very interesting flavors of left-wing populism and the history with uh, with uh, left-wing populism. Uh, not the case, of course, and not symmetrical, not at the same time in all countries. But nonetheless, I would say this is something which whenever you're hearing uh, colleagues from uh, from Argentina, from Chile, I think it's more special and as an as an exception compared to cases uh, in Eastern Europe. Uh, or if you're looking at trends right now in uh, South Asia, uh, particularly India, I would say, uh, at this specific uh, group, we don't have somebody from India, but we have from Pakistan, we have from Malaysia. In very interesting case in Malaysia, the diversity and how a ruling party can play with with this diversity and try to antagonize uh, people based on uh, religious identity. And I think that uh, uh, one of the most tough cookies uh, and hot, hot potatoes in politics is how to do with identity based on religion. Because one of the most difficult challenges for for communicators in mainstream parties and particularly in the liberal family is how do you unite people when religion is the dividing line? I mean, a very concrete example, let's say we're thinking about a, uh, a hypothetical, hypothetical case of uh, of case uh, called Wakanda, for example, uh, uh, who a country who wants to be who wants to be peaceful, and how do you actually bring together, let's say, uh, uh, Jewish Orthodox with uh, hardcore Muslims, with uh, allied Catholics, and with hardcore Protestants all together in the spirit of unity? When, let's say, you have three or four leaders in parties relating to these communities who are trying to hijack the agenda for their own, uh, for their own needs. Um, I think this is the main battle for us right now. Um, And one of the best things we can do, and I think this podcast is also part of, of this effort, is to share best practices. Try to see what others are doing and what we can adapt to, to our specific cases. Uh, for the moment, uh, from a theoretical point of view, I'm not very happy. From a practical point of view, I'm extremely happy that we don't have a lot of such cases in Africa. Africa does not have, you know, to follow in the lead of great populism. A lot of things can happen, for example, in African politics uh, for the better, to improve democracy there, to improve the welfare. And, and also, I would say, um, get away from the problem of gerontocracy. Older people holding a grasp for powers for a decade and not allowing participation in the youngest uh, continent so far. We do have participants from from North Africa uh, this time, uh, Morocco, like we had last time, Morocco and uh, and Tunisia and um, ECOWAS countries. I would say right now, what's highly highly relevant for for the current setting and for the the current group is how do we deal with 
best practices from the other side. Because whether you like it or not, Trump, and we mentioned Trump one more time, is an inspiration for a lot of people around the world. Perhaps people like Orban and the Peace Party in Poland are more famous at a local level, but I would say like by the very traction and importance of America in the international arena, uh, a Trump mandate has fundamental implications for how we deal with populism. And uh, I think that also a very concrete example, and I'm very happy to pass further the floor uh, to you, is pop culture, which we mentioned in the past. One of the things we shared in our group just before coming here, is a link from the New York Times, I believe, uh, about the Trump administration trying to shape even aspects relating to modern design. What do you think about this? I mean, how can we, you know, because this is attacking really the hardcore of liberalism. So, yeah, I, again, so much to unpack. I <laughs> I start with the last question. So, the, so just for the listeners who listen to this later on, uh, we discussed a New York Times article where it is mentioned that Trump might pass an executive order um, to have certain design policies for governmental buildings. That is a long-standing uh, tradition that we know from the Stalinist movement to uh, enforce aesthetics through the political. And again, we can contextualize this very easily. The liberals have endorsed oh, aesthetics, uh, spirituality, conception of the good outside of politics everybody should do whatever they pursue as their as their own dreams and whatever they find beautiful themselves and now we have again a homogenizing move by a populist who says ah, this nation stands stands for this certain aesthetic tradition so you basically undermine this pluralist conception of liberalism by de by deliberate politics you attack them and here you kind of demonize an architectural elite that is obsessed with this cultural advance in contemporary modern art and it's all disgusting we don't understand it so why should we have it and and it's i would say typical a typical populist move who understands that you want to sneak in all sorts of things into the political because then your rhetoric works the best you can divide people the best if you take what matters to them the most in the political that's why modi wants to take religion into the political from a secular state in India, you want to take into religion Hindu nationalism um, and make the dividing lines here. And that's very clear. If you understand that liberals have political liberalism in mind and populists have the existential battle of friend versus enemy in mind, then it will always be the battle not only about like power politics, but it will be about culture. It will be about religion. It will be about how we should conduct our lives. And this is crucial in the politics and that's why they go after certain groups. Let me mention a couple of examples. One of the moves of Erdogan was to um, not ban, but not granting the permission to the LGBTIQ movement to have their pride in Istanbul in the center. Although they had it for a couple of years, I believe five or six years, the pride movement uh, marched on Istiklal and had a very famous pride, although there has been some interferences uh, post-Gezi. But now they banned it, um, and did not issue permission, I think they offered them the, the deal that they could uh, go in some other places uh, in Istanbul, but of course not with the same relevance. And what they want to do is uh, they kind of take this pluralism out of society, out of the political radar. Uh, it's not only non-recognition of this group, but it's also saying, okay, this is just not part of the political space. The political space here has everything, like culture, religion, everything. But LGBTIQ sexual identity issues? No, we negate them. And that's the very crucial move that they are making. 
Similarly, the Hungarian um, government defunded in strategic moves the civil society sector in Poland strategically. They uh, took everything that was broadly liberal, feminist or left-wing and tried to cut the funds there and funnel the funds to the more conservative causes leading to the big issue. I think that's uh, very famous where uh, a domestic violence hotline has been uh, defunded because, you know, in our society we deal with um, family issues in the family. That's the old Christian tradition, you know, so they resolve it there. And of course, this just plays into this conception of uh, anti-political liberalism and in favor of loading everything up with the political. And that's how I understand now this uh, Trumpist, brutalist, uh, although it's not, it will not be brutalism as I read, it will be about Greek and Italian or Renaissance, you know. So uh, <laughs> this is kind of the, the strategic move that Trump is here making. In terms of the politics, let's dive a little bit deeper into liberal democracy. Have liberals defended democracy sufficiently or are they actually aware of what they are defending against the populists when they are trying to defend um, democracy? Because it seems to me that the populists can say that they are just a better Democrats. They win in elections. It's not that they are marching in the countries and hijacking them. They win in elections. Are they just a better Democrats? Or what, what went wrong here? Whether we like it or not, uh, democracy is the rule of the majority. It doesn't mean that this is necessarily, uh, let's say, the, the main compass for any healthy society, for any good society, for a society which provides the good life. Um, I would say that uh, the liberal democratic dream has always just been not just my, uh, majority uh, rule, but also what the majority does with that specific power. And I would say this is where things diverge from the populist speech because clearly the project uh, in most of the cases for liberal families has been progress. How can we define progress? How can we defend how we can promote progress? Whether we're talking about health progress, education progress, progress in terms of the economy, welfare, and, and so on. Of course, like you, uh, like you said multiple times, the backlash was here to come, uh, particularly on the cultural side, because I don't think that the backlash is necessarily uh, we want, we liberals want for people to be rich and the others are coming. No, enough with the richness. Let us get back to some healthy poverty you know, to be appreciative. So I would say that it's not by chance that one of the moments where uh, the rift in society has become stronger and the uh, populists were able to sneak in via this uh, uh, rift is uh, the economic crisis. We have to acknowledge and um, the immense trauma that has uh, been created in our societies by the by the um, almost a decade crisis. But but wouldn't that contradict somehow um, the point that we made earlier that it is not about left and right. It's not so much about economic issues and more about cultural issues. And just to challenge you a little bit, mm -hmm. like Poland is a success story economically. Even the financial crisis didn't hit Poland that hard. Um, how come we have now they are not only a populist leader with Kaczynski, but we have a populist, a populist establishment with the Law and Justice Party, with the Peace Party? A populist establishment the, does not uh, appear per se. I think that the difference with the current peace government compared with previous peace governments is the fact that uh, they knew very well what to do in opposition. And uh, they knew how to create a network of people who think like them, promote their ideas and prepare, speaking of pop culture and the wider political ecosystem, 
prepare the path for another vision for society. And then, of course, it's also about delivery on public policies. It's also about those 500 euros uh, bonus uh, for demographics so or 500 uh, zloty for, uh, for demographics. Um, and from this perspective, I would say uh, good politics is politics that delivers, but not delivers in a cynical way, like here, Uh, grab this money and you just vote for me. But it's it's more complex than this because, okay, people in need will be happy to take the money. But it's more about how you make people feel, what's the prospects of the society under with you in government and so on. Um, I loved your challenge. I would just say that the economics plays a part in the sense that Uh, one of the reasons why people are starting to listen to populists or to uh, nationalists uh, is the fact that societies functioned for a few decades, particularly, for example, to take the example of Western Europe. Um, I remember when studying about the EU that we spoke in the 60s, 70s and 80s of uh, les 30 glorieuses, as the, like the French would say, the 30 years of glory, right? Because each year there would be even more economic growth, even more jobs, everybody was even more happier. And so on. Like we, every, and we are now in a decade of constant growth. You know, exactly, even right now, but again, it's also about aligning perceptions, you know, because, and, and also about translating growth into people's pockets and into people's satisfaction and, and, and welfare because uh, I'll give you a very concrete example. My country, Romania, has recovered after the austerity times and governments have been very proud to say we're first or second best this quarter in Europe uh, at the competition with, uh, with either Ireland or Poland uh, normally. Yeah, I agree. 4%, 5%, but uh, how does this actually translate into daily life, you know? Okay, it's a sign of delivery for the government. Yes, the government can come and say, oh, oh I'm so competent, vote for me. But at the end of the day, uh, it's not like the Romans put it, just bread, you know? It's also a bit of circus. Or uh, if I were to put this in, in more... Uh, ideatic uh, uh, values terms, it's not just about the food, it's also about the soul. It's about making people dream. I think the big populist hijack is a combination of economic frustration. Normally, uh, our battle here in terms of mainstream parties would have been the social democrats fight for the disenfranchised and try to raise salaries, raise pensions, do their best. Where liberals have an, a vision based on entrepreneurship and trying to create growth and, and they'll enrich society based on innovation and not only. This dividing line, like uh, you, you noticed earlier, is no longer there. The fight is partially based on economic frustration, which you not underestimate, for example, in the debate in between Trump and Hillary, the fact that he was clearly targeting people who lost their jobs in some swing states. So there was an element of economic frustration, a feeling of loss. I would not necessarily say that, because I think this is a harsh thing to say, that somebody feels like a loser in society, either as an individual or somebody, uh, or as a community. But whether we like it or not, this negativity which is starting to be embedded in the crisis, but also more widely right now, when in, in such hectic media and social media times, it's really not easy to govern. By this, I mean that we are constantly, daily under assault of some real problems, but also about a lot of fake topics. And this is the specialty for the populist, fake topics, although they accuse so much fake news. I, I agree with what you're saying. I, I think the economic issue 
is more a characteristic that they are tabling certain issues that are there in society. It doesn't have to be economic issues, of course. Uh, for Trump, we, we all know the example of the, the Rust Belt states where um, people who lost out on global trade um, were, were tabled as a problem. And I think liberals have failed to address that problem because, of course, they might have anticipated um, there might be some backlash to trade and overall trade generates a lot of benefits for all. But we cannot deny that especially in the short term, besides the rise of prosperity and besides the um, um, cheaper products and everything that uh, as a result of uh, global free trade, um, there might be some people who are losing out. And what? how do we deal with them? That is an issue. And the populists table that issue. In this case, it was economic. But it could be uh, socially. It could be um, that some people don't be, feel reflected anymore in the popular culture of their country. So if there is only a certain part very vocal in the narrative of a certain nation uh, if for example in, in many eastern countries they kind of scapegoat or um, uh, draw these scenarios where um, only a hyper individualized society with lgbtiq community at the front um, will dominate the narrative and the popular culture of a country uh, will take over so and, and these topics are not tabled by liberals these concerns are not taken in by liberals and populists kind of table these you call them uh, fake problems i agree to a certain degree they are not of immense political relevance maybe they are bigger fish to fry but these problems are nevertheless acknowledged by everyone in society that it could be a potential problem or that it is a problem and the populists table that and i think this is what makes out for their appeal they kind of speak the minds of people that's what the narrative they want to spin out there And then they dive right into, I think, what people often forget, very clever power politics. Because once they take power and they are part of the establishment, they want to undermine liberal democracy. And we cannot forget, you said earlier, oh, we don't have a rise of populism in Africa. Well, <laughs> there's too much authoritarianism that we can have a, a backlash to liberal democracy. Uh, The populism, populism understood as a backlash to liberal democracy, of course, can only occur in liberal democracies. And that's why we see it um, in the dismantlement of liberal institutions. And unfortunately, it leads to very similar outcomes that we have still in Africa or still, I would say, the paradigm case for them is what they aspire to is Putin, how he dismantled a transitional democracy into a full-blown authoritarian dictatorship. And that's, I think, the, the roadmap ahead. And the roadmap to go there from liberal democratic Poland to Russia is outlined by the practices that something like the Peace Party is doing, something that Viktor Orban and the Fidesz Party is, are doing in, in Hungary, what um, Erdogan and the AKP part, uh, AK Party are doing in, in Turkey. It's very clear. They understand that through the democratic will, they can come into power, they can use the democratic will For anything, like think of the referendum that they are using, the referendum for Erdogan to change the Republican system or the representative system to a presidential system. Because they know one aspect of the liberal democratic order is the democratic will. But the will doesn't rule out the other two dimensions, namely individual human rights and their protection, as well as protection of the rule of law. And all the efforts that these populists are doing is using the will, one of this triangle, one of the pillars of this triangle, to undermine the other two pillars. And they are crucial to, under, to, to stand together. This triangle liberal democracy of democratic will, 
through fair elections and regular and fair and free elections, um, protection of individual human rights and the rule of law cannot stand by only one thing, by the will. No liberal has ever been in favor of only majoritarian rule. In fact, we always have been skeptical of the tyranny of the majority. John Stuart Mill, Alexis de Tocqueville, long-standing history of being skeptical about that. So what they do is they hijack this dimension, the democratic will, want to undermine the protection of individual human rights, minority rights, taking them away. For example, think of the LGBTIQ examples I gave. And the rule of law, taking out checks and balances very deliberately. We saw it with the justice system in many countries that they attack the justice system. We are now having in Israel the case, of course, where Netanyahu is on a trial and like, let's see how that unfolds. But very clearly we have seen this um, in Orban's Hungary and in uh, the current Polish regime, uh, state of affairs where they attacked the justice system and replaced basically the highest courts with the people that were most suited to their needs, undermining the fundamental principles of division of power. So this is, I think, crucial to understand for understanding populist politics, this deliberate attack on liberal democratic institutions and a road to where they are leading, to where democracies die, namely in authoritarian um, dictatorships. And how they do it, with, I think, what they are most admired for, very good communication, that brings me to the last pillar of uh, populist communication. I think I remember one sentence uh, from you very clearly where you said, we have to distinguish between popular and populist. We want to be popular, but we could never be populist. Could you elaborate on that? What could make us popular and what is the difference between being a populist? Because once you're popular, uh, there's the accusation immediately that you are using populist techniques. Like Emmanuel Macron has been accused of being a populist, although he was just a very popular leader, I would argue. So, I agree with you. And uh, speaking of being popular and communications, I would um, use three C's. Clarity, concision, And I would also stress something, charisma. Charisma it comes also out of a combination of being natural and having a lot of practice. I think that um, one of the things which is underestimating in, in political communications nowadays, particularly by liberal educated people, is the fact that we need to be clear. All too often, and whether we like it or not, even in our podcast, um, we primarily address people of similar education with us. One of the magic of uh, populists is the fact that they use language that goes to the clarity needed for your grandma in the countryside or for a kid in his second grade or third, uh, third grade in school. But how can a grandma understand or how can the, the person there understand Uh, pluralism, yes. spontaneous order, core values of liberalism. How can our I challenge? Our challenge is to translate this into words that people can understand. A famous uh, book in the um, uh, field of uh, political communications is by an author called Frank Luntz, and it's called Words That Work. Essentially, we have to look at words that work. It's not just about the wordy shallow exercise. So it's not just about sounding nice. It's also about, of course, combining words with values, looking at the politics, looking at the policies. But it is essential, let me stress this once again, 
on clarity that people get what we mean. So clarity is really, really important. Another issue is... But, so let me just interject there. I think the populists understood that very well and they take some of our words and kind of put a negative connotation on them. So let's take the word of, of migrant mm -hmm. and migration. And Liberals have always, uh, like I would say, rather talked favorably about this topic. And now you have Viktor Orban who stigmatizes, not like refugees in particular, he stigmatizes the word migrant. And a migrant is a very clear word. Everybody understands what a migrant is, somebody who's moving. Um, and, and they attack these words that work. How can we react? Um, once a word, um, a word, a specific word, it's so toxified. I think that for a while, the only thing you can do is drop that word and try to use an alternative. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, in some uh, austerity-stricken countries, by austerity, I mean countries who have been in hard economic times, speaking of the clarity I mentioned, um, the word reform became toxic because in a lot of these countries, cuts were justified by reforms. So let's say when grandma or when regular Joe in the street would hear again on TV a reform, they would say like, oh my God, another 10% cut? Because this is what for them the association from uh, as regards to reform was. Reform means cuts. Um, it's very hard to take that specific example when somebody bashes systematically a word like migrant to detoxify instantly or even with a campaign behind that, that word. But I would try to reframe more widely, start from individual cases, to reframe more widely. And this is one of the basic processes that we, we talked about also during the, the, the seminar, framing and reframing. Framing is a case in which I lay the table in a specific way. Reframing is I rearrange the table in a way that suits my needs, my objectives. So I would say for migrants, either I find a different world, but this also depends from each country's language, or I try to add something to detoxify the world. Uh, from my perspective, if migrants are blamed of all the bad things in the world by the Orban regime, I would try to bring the human aspects and elements of victimization for such a community to bring back the soul you know, and the people beyond this community who is supposed to be, you know, the main enemy of the people in uh, in Fidesz talk. So, of course, we're to, uh, this is... But should we then drop the word liberal? Liberal is, uh, is Liberalism or liberal has been used against us and has bad negative connotations and very various forms of attack. In some societies, it means that you live the promiscuous life, you know, like having sex, drugs, alcohol, blah, blah, blah. In other societies, it means like you're a neoliberal, you would justify anything for economic terms, you know, like you're heartless. Oh, they, they try to attack these works that work. I mean, liberty, mm -hmm. liberal. Should we drop it? No. There are some words which you simply can't drop because they have to do with the magic word that we also mentioned, identity. When a word is so close to your identity, you know, if somebody attacks that core element of your identity, you have to, in a way, strike back. And by striking back, I don't mean being symmetrically populist and saying like, like in a cat fight, you know, you're a liberal and then I reply, no, and you're a bitch. You know, you can't do that. You know, <laughs> because... Uh, it's also about the rules of the game. And if we are believers in something, you know, and speaking of values, it's, it's, uh, and this has been used, including in the presidential uh, debate in Romania in an interesting way. Somebody said, 
I prefer to go down than to ignore my values. I'm doing an approximate quote right now, but that person won quite a lot because of this, because it seemed that you're prepared to lose power, but stick to your values and do something in that specific direction. We're not talking about the political follow-up to that. That's another issue. Uh, but politics is about emotion. And um, coming back to, to some earlier things I, I mentioned, separate from clarity and concision, namely to be concise, to be short and to the point, I mentioned charisma. And I think Emotion is key to charisma and emotion, not just in the sense of uh, the populist sense of freaking out people about a specific problem in society, but I would reverse the coin and I would say emotion in sense of another C, care, caring. I think the way... Or hope. I mean, Obama's... Hope. Obama's campaign hope. So essentially looking, indexing, looking into our arsenal, our army, our uh, of positive emotions combined with the values that we defend all this communicate in a very clear way i honestly believe this is the recipe for a liberal comeback again uh, this is an issue which is theoretically simple practically it has to do also with um, agreement from the parties who want to promote this we're talking about leadership it always helps when you have a charismatic leader, right? We, we tend to uh, weight so much on the shoulders of, uh, of our political leaders and our political communicators, right? As if uh, a party is supposed to, to die uh, in one mandate after they lost any kind of political leader. You know? A party is also about values. You know? It's not just an empty shell in which from time to time we try to find a superman or a superwoman. And when, when the generation of superman or superwoman is out, then that's life, boys. We're going to another parties. So I think that parties themselves should be looking inside more and more, particularly liberal parties, and trying to see themselves as institutions. Because like populist attacks uh, attack institutions, basic institutions of liberal democracy, I think the best way a party can not only survive but also thrive if, if itself has some core institutions, some rules of the game, uh, if they promote meritocracy. Uh, again, I'm, I'm committing the, the almost sin that I mentioned earlier. Not everybody understands the word meritocracy, but I would say competent people, people who actually know what they're doing. You know? some, some people call this the modern state. <laughs> exactly. See, like reframing a modern state. It's competent people, good institutions, you know, you... Yeah. At the same time, you know, like we spoke with during the seminar, efficiency is going to be a word which is going to, a word and a concept which is going to turn against us, particularly by some efficient economically authoritarian states from Asia and not only. So I think dangers to liberalism are on multiple flanks. That doesn't mean, again, that we should panic. It means awareness. It means brainstorming. This is what we, it means, but it also means Another C, connecting. And I think what we managed to do in the, this past two weeks is connect with great people who want to learn more, who want to communicate more, who want to share more also at home. And I think here we also have to thank you very, very much for entertaining all of this via Menti, via other kind of tools. And I wanted to ask you something. How can you, from your perspective, because you've been doing a lot more global, not regional, like most I do, a lot of global work. How can you personalize things more in between different cultures? And 
What is your sense that can we develop a tool of best practices which could work around the world? Yeah, I think if liberals want to strike back to adopt your terminology um, to the populist challenge, I would say that there are some first principles that we can understand. We have to do in-country studies, but then don't say, okay, do it like the Hungarians, do it like the Polish opposition. No, there are some principles that we can abstract from that, and then we can equip the leaders here um, to take on these classes and look at the world and their political realities and apply these principles there. So if we, for example, say that a classical populist theme when it comes to undermining um, liberal democratic institutions is that they will go after the rule of law, they will go after checks and balances, then there are some measures that we can use for analyzing what is happening in our own countries. If uh, Rodrigo Duterte is going uh, after the justice system and says it's not efficient, we have to do extrajudiciary measures to take care. It's clearly seeing which path we are heading down. But we can also anticipate in which direction things go and we can build the strength of the institutions. Many of our participants come from developing liberal democratic uh, orders. So that means that the institutions still need to be shaped, they need to be built, and they need to be what I always call robust, so that they can suffice the, the populist challenge. The big learning point is that Trump, whatever you make out of him, I hopefully hopefully not much, um, he has a very limited impact on how politics is done in the United States. He has tremendous impact on the political discourse. It's all toxic. But in terms of political reform, he just his, he cannot do much. Most of his the executive orders that he wanted to pass were uh, called back by the lawyers and the rule of law kicked in. And because of these proceedings, he doesn't have much operating space. The story is completely different in something like the Philippines. And so we have to, or, or India for painting even a darker picture. And so this is the big learning point for our participants. Understanding populism means that you cannot only analyze what's going on, but you can also prevent it by building the right institutions and by building up those institutions, making them robust. Because the populists will dis destroy the discourse, no doubt about that. But once the institutions are in place, there can be peaceful transition of power once again. And then that's the big hope for liberalism. And with that, let's close. Big learning points. Populism is the backlash to liberalism. Populism is basically the anti-liberalism in terms of its values. There's a big realignment in politics. It's not left versus right, but the liberals versus the populists. And what we ultimately want to be are popular liberals, not lazy liberals. But we want to be popular liberals and not populists. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.